Okay, we're going to pick up uh, on our, our class on Christianity and culture. Last week we talked about vocation, which was fun. And you guys had all kinds of great questions. Um, and I would, if you have more questions on vocation, maybe we can, we can answer some more uh, offline or, or what have you. I think there's probably more for us to explore, but that was, that was a lot of fun, especially having the young people with us for, for um, that class on vocation. A huge area that we need to think about in terms of Christianity and culture intersecting is the magistrate. And uh, I'm a little tired today. I didn't, I didn't sleep well last night. Um, <clears throat> my back hurts. From I had, We had little league assessments yesterday, and I had to reach down to pick the balls up instead of having the balls right here, which doesn't seem that big of a deal. After the hundredth kid or so, six ground balls and, and throwing pitches, it uh, doesn't bode well. So anyway... If I drift off or I, don't, I look a little glassy-eyed at some point, it's just because I, I'm a little sleep-deprived. Um, big area, though, that we want to talk about is, is the magistrate, is uh, uh, civil authorities. How does the Christian relate to uh, the culture, particularly in the realm of civil authorities? Uh, what's the Christian's relationship to the state? Since we're citizens of God's eternal kingdom, and we bow to King Jesus alone, he's our king, what should our attitude be toward those who govern us? Now, as you probably know, in the New Testament, there are a few different passages that speak to this. Uh, The apostles Peter and Paul deal with those questions. Paul, in his letter to the church that was located in Rome, and Peter to the churches in the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so as they're writing these letters that deal with uh, huge areas of the Christian life, Christian doctrine, they address this. They don't give us political theory. Uh, they're not trying to tell us what, uh, they're not giving us a blueprint for what Christian government looks like. Uh, the Bible doesn't provide us with that. Um, but they do tell us that one of the most important ways, or, or one of the ways, that uh, Christians pursue holiness and keep their conduct honorable amongst unbelievers and is uh, the way in which they submit to uh, the authority, and live as citizens in the world. And so, it, the Bible, it doesn't provide us. It's very important that we understand this. We sometimes try to come to the Bible with questions that the Bible does not answer. We often have the wrong questions when we come to the Bible. Um, when we come into church uh, and, we're, and we're waiting to hear from the Lord, the Bible provides us with the questions that we need as, we write, as we're reading through it. And uh, sometimes they're not the same questions that we bring. And when it comes to the Christian's relationship to the civil authorities, uh, there's probably going to be, a, there should be, a huge amount of questions that we find that the Bible does not answer uh, because that's just not its, its concern. But it does provide clear guidance on how we should live in relationship to the temporal state. It may not address every detail, but it gives us enough to honor the Lord. We have dual citizenship. We're citizens of God's holy and eternal kingdom, and we're sojourners and exiles who are away from our true homeland of heaven, but we must also live as resident aliens in this present evil age. So what does God desire of us? Well, turn in your Bibles with me. I'm going to just to look at two passages. They're both short. Uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7 and 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. There's a lot of passages we could look at, but these are probably the the quintessential passages. So first of all, Romans 13. Thankfully, the car alarm has stopped. Okay, Romans 13. And and again, keep it in context. What has Paul done? He's laid out the, the gospel very clearly from chapters 3 all the way through chapter 11, from chapter 12 through the rest, he's saying, here's some ways that you can glorify the Lord now as those who believe that gospel. So the, the most important thing is the doctrine, and then the ethics that are those that follow. And so uh, chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good, work, good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay? Pretty comprehensive. Turn with me over to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll get one more passage. These will be our passages uh, for today and probably next week. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Sounds very similar to what Paul says in Romans. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Okay, from those two texts... Uh, I want to make four main points, four main points. Again, we could spend years talking about um, you know, political theory and et cetera. Um, that, that's not my intent. Notice how short these texts are. Uh, that's the priority that the Bible gives them. They are important in terms of how we live the Christian life, but no more important than uh, the other areas in which we are to live, um, Christian liberty, family responsibilities, work responsibilities, uh, so on and so forth. Four main points I want us to recognize. First of all, we, we need to remember that God has instituted the civil authorities. God has instituted the civil authorities. Now, we've, we've gone through this in the, in the Noahic covenant and also in creation, but it's very important that if we want to honor God as Christians in relationship to the civil authorities, which I also call the magistrate, we have to remember that God has instituted them, that it's part of nature or, or creation, the realm of creation, and uh, or common grace, we might call it, uh, but not redemption. The state does not have a redemptive purpose. The church has a redemptive purpose. Uh, remember when I made those two columns here of you know, church and culture, or Christianity and culture. Our Christianity informs how we live in the culture because we're Christians 24-7. Everything we do has to be in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a, a whole realm of things in culture that uh, we do alongside unbelievers. And many of these things are what we would call the, the, the common kingdom, the common realm, uh, and Certainly, the civil authorities uh, are part of that. Uh, God, and Paul says just that in Romans 13. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter says the same thing. Governors sent by him. The, the state is not bringing in the new creation. The church is doing that through the gospel. The church has the keys of the kingdom, not the state. The state has a different purpose. The state is a kingdom that is part of a kingdom that exists between the fall of Adam and the consummation. Remember in God's judgment of Cain, when Cain had killed his brother Abel, God established the justice and order in the world by putting a mark on Cain and swearing an oath that anyone who punishes him would be punished. So that amounts to the infancy of the civil magistrate. In the garden... There was no state. There were no taxes. There was no civil government. It was wonderful. 
because there was no sin. There was no sin. The civil authorities exist because of the fall. Okay? It's something that God had instituted, but it's, an, it's something that we have to understand was not necessary in the garden. It's part of what we call common grace. And so common grace is God's undeserved kindness to all people, no matter what their religious status. Your pagan neighbors may have healthier kids than you. That's just common grace. They may be better students than you. Uh, Common grace involves God's good gifts to believers and unbelievers alike. Rain, sunshine, talents, abilities... Okay, that's why some of your favorite musicians or artists weren't necessarily Christians, and that's okay. It's part of common grace. Human conscience is part of common grace. So Romans 1 and 2 talk about the, the light of nature. It's dim, and humans suppress the truth, but there are things that are self-evident and clear in the human conscience. The third is that there's this restraint of sin that's necessary, and that's where the state comes in. The state comes in. As I mentioned, Abraham Kuyper, he said, God has instituted the magistrate by reason of sin. The purpose of the magistrate is to curb evil and to maintain order in a fallen world. And so we have to understand that. It does not replace the family. It cannot uh, encroach upon the, the, the authority that the family has. Before the state existed, there was the family. The family was in the garden. All human relationships were centered in the family, specifically the divinely ordained creation order of children submitting to parents and wives to husbands. And that shows us that the family and not the state is the foundational building block of human society. So it, it follows that Christians should be uh, somewhat at least, we might disagree on, we, we can disagree on all kinds of particulars, but we should, to some degree, be in favor of limited government because, uh, and smaller government because it cannot go beyond the bounds that God has uh, appointed it for. However that sentence was supposed to end. Um, Romans 13, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So God's appointed it to curb evil. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the state comes in in order to protect. At least that's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. It's a fallen world. And there's always going to be corruption. The the state is supposed to ensure that citizens are able to live peaceful, quiet, godly, and even prosperous lives. That's what the New Testament tells us. That's what Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think I incorporated that in our morning prayer this morning. That uh, that's pleasing in the sight of the Lord that we spend peaceful lives, minding our own business. Uh, The state is supposed to ensure that. And that includes the protection of private property, the protection of commerce and trade, and the freedom for us to pursue our callings as citizens of the common kingdom. Uh, The state is supposed to protect all that. Now the state's authority is limited. We have to remember that. They have no authority to regulate Scripture. The state has no authority to tell us how often we can have Lord's Supper. It has no authority to say, this is how you should discipline your members. It has no authority to say, here's how you should worship. It has no authority to say who can come to the table and who cannot. That is not their realm. In a sense, this is... You know, when you go to an embassy... I I just had this conversation with my son. He asked me what an ambassador is. When you step onto an embassy, you may know, if if you've traveled to other countries... Uh, if, for example, if I'm in Italy and I go to the embassy of the United States, when I walk into the embassy, I am no longer on Italian soil. And the same is true for embassies that are here. And there's a real sense in which the church is the same way. We're an embassy of heaven. And again, that is why, that is why there is no... Yes. 
So many churches have the American flag. Um, we don't, for good reason. Because when we gather together, at, now I keep a flag on the front of my home for quite a while, uh, throughout the year. I served in the military. I'm a patriot. Don't worry. Uh, but when we come to church, that's not the appropriate place. There's that car alarm again, blasted thing. Who's got the black Toyota? I'm kidding. Who has the black Toyota? <laughs> we uh, turned that off. Okay, we'll all have post-traumatic stress syndrome. Okay. Uh, they have no authority to regulate Scripture, the preaching of the gospel, administration of sacraments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They do not regulate the church. The Word of God regulates the church. Elders have been appointed. And so it's really important that we keep that in mind. Okay? The state is not redemptive in that way. The church is doing redemptive work through the means of grace. The state has a common uh, 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 role in a common kingdom. Okay, very important for us to remember that. It's also important to remember as we're coming to 1 Peter, 3, uh, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 that they're not dealing with the specific question of what Christians should do when uh, the state exceeds its divinely appointed authority. Um, they're not writing a systematic theology on civil government. They're simply affirming that Christians in the Roman Empire, just like Israel when she was in Egypt or in Babylon are to recognize the legitimacy of civil authorities even in pagan cultures. Okay? So um, it doesn't even matter. It does not matter in many ways if the president is a Christian or not. Martin Luther has that famous line, I would rather be governed by uh, a wise Turk than a corrupt Christian. And... (laughs) Um, you know, and, and let me just say here, you know, I saw this thing on the news about, you know, uh, somebody was interviewing our president, and uh, the interviewer asked if he would uh, empty his pockets. Did anybody see that? And so he did, and he had three things in his pocket. He had a rosary that the Pope had given him. He had a poker chip that some biker had given him, and he had a little Hindu god. Yeah, and I see everybody, oh, I Hindu god, Hindu god. I don't care. I do not care. I care about, is the president's, uh, is, he, is he fulfilling his role? Is he sticking to the Constitution? Is he wise? He keeps these things, he has a bowl of these things, um, of uh, good luck charms, and he picks them up when he goes out the door, and he sticks them in his pocket, a few of them, to remind him of you know, who he is. He just finds some comfort in doing that. Now, you know, I know if you've adopted a narrative that is, blame this president for everything, then you're going to immediately accuse. Um, keep in mind that Nancy Reagan used to consult astrologers. And so it, they're all bad, in my mind. They're all bad. And so we have to uh, be wise and careful. But the point is, is that uh, the, the, Christ, the, the president doesn't have to be a Christian. It's not, it, that's not the realm of him. No more than your doctor needs to be a Christian. And you might have a Christian president who's incompetent. And, like, and conversely, you could have a, Christ, uh, a non-Christian who's very good. I mean, obviously, it would be great if, he, if you had a competent Christian president. But even the Christian presidents, what's their profession? I mean, pick your favorite president. You know, you know I love history, and I read a lot of history. Pick your favorite president. John Adams, he was awesome. Brilliant, intellectual giant. Buried in a Unitarian cemetery. He denied the Trinity, not a Christian. Okay, Thomas Jefferson. Is there any greater philosopher than Thomas Jefferson? Probably my favorite. Um, is a deist. Okay, not a Christian. You can actually still, it's still published. If you go to the Jefferson Memorial, they sell it. The Bible that he edited, he edited out all of the miracles. And so the idea that, well, our founding fathers were Christians is, first of all, it's just an, it's a silly idea. They all weren't believers. Ben Franklin was not. That doesn't mean that they weren't brilliant and capable men that God had endowed with gifts and abilities to write a great form of government and to lead. 
So we have to understand it's not part of the redemptive realm. It's part of the common realm. Very important that we get that. Okay? Uh, second point I want to make, and this should be obvious, Christians are to submit to the civil authorities. I mean, that's what Paul is saying and Peter is saying. We're to submit, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or supreme. It was the Roman emperor at that time. Uh, Paul wrote to Titus, uh, Pastor Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Uh, we're to be submissive. We're to be law-abiding citizens is what he's getting at. Uh, the apostles were, you know, they're not going through every hypothetical, but they're simply saying, be law-abiding citizens. The apostles were concerned that the believers of the first century had a good reputation for being law-abiding citizens. And they did. The same in the Reformation. If you read the, the uh, preamble to the Belgic Confession in 1561, after Debray writes it out, they take a copy they throw it over the castle wall uh, in Spain, King Philip II, and they lay out saying, we will, we will be good citizens, we will obey the king on everything, we'll pay our taxes, we'll do whatever you want, but we are not going to deny what's here in Scripture. We can't do that, because they were being forced to be Roman Catholic. And Debray and many of the, many of the others uh, paid for that with their lives. Um, but... They, they wanted to make it clear to the king that they were law-abiding citizens. And that's what Scripture is getting at. In the first century, the apostles realized that it may be tempting for Christians to interpret their loyalty to King Jesus as a license for rebellion against pagan and ungodly rulers who governed them. But in the New Covenant, there is no holy geopolitical nation. Christians must be subject to pagan authorities, like the Roman emperor, who in Peter's day was Nero. And what Peter means here by subject is obey the law. Don't be rebels. He's not writing, again, a political theory or exploring every possible scenario, because there are, things, are times in which we must disobey. But the, the thrust here is be law-abiding citizens. Have reputation for not being a rebel. It was important for the apostles to emphasize that uh, because in the first century, the Roman Empire had to deal with a variety of rebel groups, both in Rome and, and in just about every occupied land. They had some group that was trying to rebel against uh, Caesar. And remember that among the Jews in Palestine, there were rebel groups. There were the zealots. They were passionate about kicking out the Romans and starting a revolution. And their passion was fueled by stories of Judas Maccabeus, you know, and his bravado, and how he had kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the, uh, the Syrian king uh, for Greece, uh, who had set up a, an idol uh, in the temple and had desecrated the temple, uh, sacrificed pigs and had the priests drink blood and slaughtered lots of people, and the Maccabeans drove them out. And so uh, that's in, that happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so then you have people in Jesus' day who want to do that again with the Romans. And uh, Jesus makes it very clear he's not a zealot. He was not a, a guerrilla or uh, a freedom fighter. That wasn't his mission. And he has to make that very clear. And the apostles didn't want the Christian church to be labeled among those groups. And so it's very important that we understand what Scripture's getting at here. Now, is there a qualification for obeying the magistrate? Of course there is. That question always comes up. Well, when am I supposed to? We love checklists, I know. But the only paradigm that Scripture gives us, okay, is a very simple one. You know, from Acts chapter 4, verses 18 and 20, from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, and from Daniel 3, okay, when the exiles are in Babylon, very similar situation, as in the New Covenant, the paradigm is simply this. When the state requires you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God requires, you not only can or should, you must disobey. You must. Otherwise, you're honoring somebody else before God. 
So if the, if the state says you cannot assemble for worship anymore because you don't ordain women, you don't perform homosexual marriages, you don't whatever, whatever, okay, that's persecution. Um, we have to, we still meet. We still meet. And we are not sinning by disobeying the law. Anytime that we're called to do something that God uh, uh, forbids. So, for example, in Nazi Germany, we always love to bring up Nazi Germany, or occupied Holland. Uh, you know, lots of Dutch Reformed people who lived in occupied Holland. A Christian must not obey the law when it says you must refuse service to Jews or turn them in to the secret police. You must not obey that. Because to do so is to dishonor God's law that says that we are to love our neighbor and to treat every person as an image bearer. It would be to sin against God. Likewise, in the days of the African slave trade in America, Christians must not regard an African as any less than an equal image bearer, something that wasn't very evident in the early years of our nation, regardless of what local laws say. It doesn't matter what the local law says. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right for us as Christians. And just because something is illegal may not necessarily mean it's wrong. We have to first go to Scripture. We first go to Scripture. So that's the the qualification in our submission to the state. Where laws do not cause us to sin against God, even laws that we don't like, uh, we don't find helpful, uh, even that are questionable as to whether they're constitutional, uh, if it doesn't conflict clearly with God's word, we must obey it. We can do everything in our power to change that law, but until they're changed, we must obey it. My one that bugs me to no end, as you probably know, is 65 ridiculous miles per hour. Because nobody drives 65 except my son in his truck because he's just got his license and he's scared. Everybody else goes 80. That's a silly law. It's not unbiblical. I can't, I can't say you're causing me to sin. Uh, I'm sinning because I'm frustrated when I go over 65. Especially when you have a CHP tell you, if you go 70 or 75, you're probably not going to get pulled over. But it does say 65, Mr. Brown. Um, you know, it's a silly law, in my opinion. And that's okay for us to say, okay, I don't like this law but we need to obey it until we get it changed. And we ought to do something about it, besides just write Facebook posts. We ought to try to change things. It's so easy just to vent, but we ought to try to change things. And I'm guilty of that too. Uh, God has commanded that we protect life, which includes, but is not limited to, the unborn. But God has not spoken about every little thing. He's not told us why a particular tax increase or an energy conservation initiative should be supported or not. There's going to be a lot of things that aren't as clear. There's much that is open to debate and we can disagree about. Two Christians should agree on the biblical principle that the state has the responsibility to promote the well-being of society, for example, yet we can completely disagree on how the state can do that best. And that disagreement should be expected amongst us. And uh, we can't claim our view as the Christian view on the minutia. And so remember, we, we are to do all of this for the Lord's sake. Not for my sake or for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. Every time we obey the authority in laws that do not cause us to sin, we honor the Lord who is supreme over all. We honor Him. And that includes the thing we probably like the least, taxes. Taxes. Paul says, pay your taxes. Jesus uh, was tried, they tried to trap Jesus uh, when they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And uh, knowing that if he says, no, you don't pay taxes to Caesar, the people will love it, but then he'd be in trouble with Rome. If he says, yes, you must pay, then uh, he won't be in trouble with Rome, but the people won't like him, he'll lose popularity points. He says, give me a coin whose image is on here, Caesar's, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Two kingdoms. Um, now, of course, that opens up a whole bunch of questions, right? Well, what percentage of taxes? At what point? And the Bible doesn't speak to that. It doesn't, it does, it's not that clear. Um, clearly, we should do all we can to keep that low 
and keep the state in a limited role and function as much as possible. But obeying those laws, nonetheless, bring glory to the Lord. Okay? So first two points there. Recognize civil authorities are instituted by God. It's part of the Noahic Covenant. And the sword has been given to the state to curb evil. The church has the keys of the kingdom, not the state. The state has the sword, not the church. In the, the state's ethic is supposed to be eye for an eye. The state's responsibility is not to show mercy all the time. The church proclaims mercy. And we have, there are distinctions in the, in the ethic. The, the church is to go all over the world and occupy. The state is not. Uh, the, the, the church is to go out and convert. Uh, the, the state is not. We're not to go out and take lands and make them ours in an empire. And, uh, but the state has that responsibility of protecting. Protecting life, protecting property, allowing us to live quiet and peaceful lives. Now, that's where the debate comes in, is because how can I live a quiet and peaceful life when my taxes are going up? Well, there's always going to be waste, as we know. There is no perfect utopia. It's always been messed up. It always will be. That doesn't mean we shouldn't fight to make it the best we can, and we'll talk about that in our last class on how to build culture. But we have to recognize that we are to obey those laws that do not cause us to sin. Okay? We've got two more points. Let me try to get through number three here. Number three is this. We're talking about our relationship to the civil magistrate. This goes along with being a good citizen. Is do good in society. And I, and I want to press this home for us here because sometimes as Reformed Christians, we don't do a good job of this. Sometimes as Christians, we don't do a good job of this. Verse 15, for this... In, Peter, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, Peter uses a word there, uh, it translates doing good, to mean works beyond what is normally expected. And it's the same verb that Jesus uses in Luke 6 when he instructs, instructs his followers to do more than just love their friends, but even to love their enemies, expecting nothing in return, trusting your reward in heaven will be great. Jesus and Peter use that word to describe good works that are far more than private acts of piety, but rather public acts of service to our neighbors. In other words, we should go beyond just merely obeying the law, but seeking to do good in society. Simply obeying the law doesn't cause us to stand out as commendable citizens. Obeying the law doesn't necessarily put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, for they presumably too obey the law. Peter calls us to go beyond mere obedience to the law and to actually do good. Imagine if Christians were known. Imagine if our church, the members of our church, were all known for volunteering in their communities, for knowing their neighbors, giving a little extra time to give back, to do some good things. Imagine if that were the case. Uh, sometimes we don't do a very good job of that. Because even pagans, you see, they recognize that as commendable. And I want to be careful here not to make myself sound like the hero of my own story, but I've had the blessing over the last three years or so, four years, of being involved in my community in Tierra Santa through Little League. And, uh, you know, yesterday, assessments come out, season starts up again. I know all these unbelievers, and there are some good unbelievers out there for giving of their time. You know, working in Little League, being a Little League coach is a lot of time. You're looking at 15, maybe 20 hours a week. And uh, I'm on the board there now, and they are definitely not Christians. Um, we're not going to air this one. Uh, but you know what? It's a great opportunity for evangelism. It's, they all know I'm the rev, the pastor, and little by little, I've got great conversations, being able to evangelize, and they ask questions. And, but it requires something of us. Now, for years, I didn't do that. And pastors are the worst. We will, we will sometimes just be in our study, which is our home, and we go home with our family, 
And then, you know, our whole life involves just Christian people. And we never get out of that bubble. And uh, we need to be out doing good in society. And the pagans even recognize that as commendable and good when somebody's volunteering and giving of their time, not getting paid for it. Well, what if we all did things like that in our communities and society? We're going to talk about that more when we talk about building culture. But that's a huge way for us to do good. Volunteering at a local hospital or a homeless shelter or public school. If you know a sport well, volunteering in a rec league. Get involved. Your neighbors should know who you are. They should know that we're Christians and that we seek the welfare of our neighbors. That's what God calls us to do in this kind of ethic. Jeremiah 29, remember the context. Jeremiah 29 speaking to the exiles. They're out of the Holy Land, just like we are. They're exiles, as Peter calls us. And it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He doesn't say, take it over, make it a, a, a satellite city of Judah. He says, seek the welfare of that city. Do the common things. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we seek the welfare of our cities? This is part of us being law-abiding good citizens and standing out. Okay? It, it, it requires more of us than just right doctrine. Right doctrine is crucial. I'll be the last one in the world to ever deny that. But uh, that right doctrine should also lead us to service and to right worship. So serve your community. Last thing, honor those in authority. Honor those in authority. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. All people are to receive their due respect as image bearers of God. uh, And that includes those in public office. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road a little bit for us, right? How do we honor a ruler with whom we disagree? How do we honor a wicked ruler? Okay. Well, a few things. Again, remember where authority comes from. comes from God. Okay. Pray for them. I think oftentimes we spend a lot more time complaining about our leaders than actually praying for them. Pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3. And then third, try to be issue-oriented, if I can say that, as Christians, not party-oriented. Scripture has to be the lens. And guys, if we adopt the oversimplified uh, method of, well, blame the other side, that's my narrative, um, we're not bringing honor to anybody by doing that. And Christians should move away from that kind of Uh, approach to politics and to society, okay? It's just, well, my narrative is blame the president. And so if he does something good, I'm not going to give him credit for it. But if my guy does something good, so if gas prices are low, I'm not going to say anything. But boy, if they go over $4, then if it's my guy in in office, oh, gas prices are low, low, look what he's doing. Okay, that is silly. We need to be issue-oriented, not, not party-oriented. Uh, I can tell a story. I had a pastor friend who, you know, when there was some recent negotiations with Iran, and, you know, we're not happy about that kind of stuff a, a while back with the president. and He gets on social media and blows up, and, oh, here we are negotiating with, negotiating with Iran and, you know, doing deals for weapons. And, and I couldn't believe he said that. He said, Reagan never would have done this. Now, I love Reagan, too. I served under Reagan. But on my 18th birthday, one of my gifts was Oliver North's autobiography. And it's about this thick. And uh, I was a poli-sci major. I, I loved that stuff. And I read it. And Ollie North, if you don't know the story, he was the guy who got pinned for everything by President Reagan 
for something called the Iran-Contra scandal. So that's just silly. That's, that's a, a blame-the-president narrative. Why can't we as Christians say, look, yes, I have my, I'm part of this political party so that I vote, or you don't have to be. I mean, I am, but, and most things line up this way as I see them, but we have to be issue-oriented. And when there are things that the leader has done that are commendable, that if I could say, yeah, if it were my guy in office and this had happened, uh, I would be happy about it. And I would say, yeah, we're doing a good job. Why can't we do that? Why is it that so often it's like, if I come out and I say anything commendable about the president, then everybody's going to think I'm a closet you know, progressive or I'm, a, or I'm a weak Republican or something. Guys, that's what the world does. That's what the world does. That's not what the Christian is supposed to do. The Christian had, your political party is Jesus. Now, yeah, you pick your poison, so to speak, while you're here on earth, and we, it's perfectly fine to be upset about a lot of stuff, and, and we ought to hold the, the guy accountable when he oversteps his bounds. But good grief, let's challenge him on his legislation, not get upset because he's golfing. When your guy might go golfing, but then it might be, well, but he needs to relieve his stress because you've adopted a blame the president narrative or party narrative. So we need to be issue-oriented, which is really important. And, and you know, we're going to disagree on certain things. We're gonna di- we might disagree as Christians, uh, even as maybe, let's say, a bunch of conservative people could have legitimate disagreements on how to do health care or foreign policy. And we can make good arguments, as we should make good arguments, for our case. But we need to remember that, and we should not revile the president. We should not revile. Guys, remember, reviling is a sin. Reviling is a sin. The ninth, honor, the ninth commandment says, honor and advance your neighbor's good name. Will rulers always rule justly? No. No. We live in a fallen world. Will they sometimes use power to violate laws? Yes, David did. Will they violate natural law and legislated law? They will. We should hold them accountable when they do. Okay, but expect it. And to some degree, the magistrate will always be corrupt. There will never be a perfect form of government the side of heaven, which is going to be a theocracy, by the way, not a republic. Uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a monarchy. Uh, just as there is no perfect marriage the side of heaven. Calvin said, It may be objected that kings and magistrates often abuse their power and exercise tyrannical cruelty rather than justice. Such were almost all the magistrates when this epistle was written. To this objection I answer that tyrants and those like them do not produce such effects by their abuse, but that the ordinance of God ever remains in force as the institution of marriage is not subverted, though the wife and husband were to act in a way not becoming of them. However much men may go astray, yet the end fixed by God cannot be changed. So, of course, that doesn't mean the Christian should just suck it up and be quiet. As citizens of the U.S. or any temporal nation, we hold our rulers accountable and point out where they have overstepped the bounds of their authority. Uh, and that's one of the ways in which we love our neighbor. But we should do this with honor and respect. Mocking the president or governor is unbecoming of Christians. You're a Christian first. You're a Christian first. You're a Christian who happens to be an American. And so we have to keep in mind that in our relationship to the... The world might do that, but you're not to do that. You're not to do that. And uh, we have to help each other. When I Like you, I get upset too. I get upset too, and I don't have to like what I see. But we have to, we have to object without resorting to reviling and dishonoring and doing the very things that Scripture commands us not to do. Uh, I'll stop there and pause. We can pick up next week. Uh, we have time for maybe one or two questions. Well, okay, thumbnail sketch. Church is persecuted most of the time for the first three centuries after the ascension of Christ. 
They have, they have various persecutions, some state-sponsored persecution, like Diocletian and Valerius and others. Um, Constantine is the first Roman emperor who does not demand to be called Caesar's lord, and he gives Christianity favorable status. He does not make Christianity, he doesn't make all the uh, Roman Empire Christian, but Christianity is uh, given some favorable status and allowed to continue. From that point, from Constantine, okay, we're talking early 300s, all the way up until the Reformation, you have in the West basically um, a marriage of church and state that leads to all kinds of problems. It's also why you have the rise of the papacy. When Constantine moves the capital of the Roman Empire over to Istanbul, which he names Constantinople, the people in Rome, which is the epicenter of the world, look to the bishop, who at that time had become so political because he's, he's next to Constantine, uh, and that's how the papacy rises, is because of Constantine. So it's basically uh, a, a, the idea of uh, a Christian nation. Is, is the way the term Constantinianism gets used. And you should flee it like, uh, you know, one of the plagues upon Egypt. Run for your life. Constantinianism. Yeah, Constantinian. It's good to know these things. You hear them dropped, you know, in political discussion and, you know, that kind of thing. Basically. Yeah, basically. It's a, I mean, that's what it amounts to. And, and you'll find people have different, the marrying of the two kingdoms, not, not recognizing that there is a sacred and a secular. And, uh, and it leads to lots of problems. Yeah, John. So one of the things we're talking about, the church and the culture, and what you mentioned today is more of a partisan you know, politics stuff. But the thing that kind of interests me is the fact that um, you're almost told Who, who is saying that, John? Sure. Yeah, and then sadly, a lot have in, interpreted, you know, when Jefferson talked about the, um, what do you call it, the wall of separation, that people have interpreted that to mean uh, you seal off your faith from all public things. That, that, was a th- that happened with the Enlightenment. The idea with the world, religion is just private. You do your religion, your religion in your heart, but do not bring it into the public square. Well, the Christian isn't supposed to do that. The Christian is a, is a Christian all the time. And so I can't go against anything. Now, i got to use wisdom. You know, if i got a guy, my boss is taking the Lord's name in vain or whatever, I'm not going to say, you know what, you know, you're not going to come to the Lord's table. You know, he, he's unregenerate. What am I, I, why is it that Christians want non-Christians to act like they're regenerate? They're not regenerate. They don't have the Holy Spirit. What do we expect? Of course they're going to act like pagans. You know, give them a break for crying out loud. Give them the gospel. Give them the ability. To, they can't see. But, when it, but you know, if... if uh, if there's this, I think I get what you're saying, there's this growing sentiment that do not try to proselytize, do not try to be bold in your faith, do not say that Christianity is the only way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that's part of, that's, you know, we are moving into cultural exile more and more. And what I mean by that is that uh, Christianity has enjoyed a, a kind of cultural favored status in America for a long time, and through a lot of events, that is really passing away. And honestly, I'm okay with that in some ways. Because I think that it, what it does is it allows the church to uh, stand out more brightly. We now, so, so let's say marriage just goes crazy in our culture with what is a, a husband and wife, who identifies as well. I came in, you know, it's so uh, just unhuman anymore. We can't even put a label on anything. Yeah, it totally goes against natural law. But now Christians have a great opportunity to demonstrate to the world what a real marriage looks like. 
and to, and, and, and to bear witness in the heart of the pagan something that he knows by nature. He knows by nature that it's one man, one woman. And he, when he sees it modeled by the church, now we've got a great opportunity. Or the coexist stickers. The Christians get all crazy about the coexist stickers. I say, of course we have to coexist. You know, we, can, we, we, don't, we, don't have the, we don't have any more favored status as one religion over another. It doesn't say co-confess or co-believe. I don't believe that Islam is valid or true as a religion, but I have to live alongside him. And I shouldn't be allowed to have, uh, um, you know, uh, if Christians are allowed to have prayers in public schools, then guess what? So is the Muslim. And so is the Hindu. That's why I'm against prayer in public schools. And you should be too. You should be too. You don't, you, do you want your teacher leading, your kid's teacher leading your kids in prayer? I don't. Now that doesn't mean that I need to uh, uh, I withdraw from the culture. I continue being a Christian, despite what the culture says. But let's recognize, see, the thing is, is the P word. Americans don't like the P word. We're terrified of the P word. Any form of the P word. What am I talking about? Persecution. Any form of it. We don't like it. We don't know what to do with that. We're not used to it. Everything's always been hunky-dory, and now things are changing. And we all want to cast the blame here, there, and everywhere. But it's a great opportunity for the church to be the church. The problem is the church isn't acting like the church, as I was pointing out with the fourth commandment before. The church doesn't act like the church anymore. And so we're so weak in the culture as a church, we've become so much like the culture that we can't even, be a, we can't even influence the culture for any good. Let me stop there, lest we have uh, the parents bring me up on charges. And then we'll, uh, I'll answer questions. I'll stick around for a while. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had. We pray you would uh, help us understand and grapple with these things, Lord. Give us wisdom and help us to honor, Lord, the authorities that you have placed uh, to govern the common land. Lord, we pray they would do so wisely and not persecute your church. And help us as the church, Lord, to follow your commands in everything, unashamedly. And may we live as the apostles did in the first century, Father, boldly and bravely, uh, despite what may come. May you be honored in everything. And may our kids grow up knowing that, Lord, that they are first Christians. Help us, O Lord, we pray, not to be like the world in the way that we relate to one another or to the magistrate, but may we bring you honor in everything. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.